Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is uh, C.R. Wiley, and we are pugcasting, as we always do, from uh, the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. And I'm joined by my friends, as I am every week, and I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in the Boston campus. And uh, that's it. <laughs> and I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. Today is Tom's Day, so what are we talking about, Tom? Okay, so, all right, a couple of podcasts ago, um, we were talking about Barman, and we were talking about the resistance um, movement within the Christian church um, when things, especially in, in um, Germany during the situation in World War II, rose to a situation in which the church had to draw certain lines. Uh, many think the church drew those lines too late um, and, and may, you know, that's it's a de debatable um, point. But uh, one of the things we were addressing last time was the way in which uh, theology and uh, had played a role in fertilizing the ground in which there was a lot of compromise within Christian churches when National Socialism took, took charge. And we, we listed a bunch of things, and these things are continuously relevant, and I think they continuously remain relevant to the way in which uh, the church and culture um, relate to each other, especially in our time and in, in you know, our context here in the U.S. And, and so one of the things we talked about is the way especially theological liberalism had tried to make a pact with sort of the general culture of Germany and sort of a, a Christianized German culture. And, um, and what became very dominant was the emphasis on culture and its movement not so much the theology that was supposed to be um, shaping and determining that culture. So theology was rather fault, uh, basically um, following the spirit of the age um, rather than the spirit of the age following the spirit of the ages, as you right, know, right. some theologians have put it. Right. Um, it. It ended up becoming backwards. Trend, you know, the context, however you put it, what became almost like fate to which Christian theology had to adjust itself in order to be relevant and informative to a given people at a particular time. And I think this has always been a challenge for the church is how do you speak into distinct and changing historical contexts where meaning shifts and um, beliefs shift and uh, you speak something that is understood by the culture but not accommodated so much to where the culture is actually redefining um, the content that Christians hold. Right. Um, and, and, yeah. and so that's where I'm picking, kind of picking up with this. Yeah, it's interesting when you, when you, I did two master's theses on the concept of theological accommodation. Hmm. Uh, okay. Oh, great. And there, there is, in the 19th century, and this probably dates back earlier, there were two different ways of looking at accommodation. One of them was accommodation of 
what I call manner. That is to say, it's an accommodation that is a rhetorical strategy that's intended to take people from where they are to where they need to go. Okay. And it was considered unethical in that kind of accommodation to affirm people's lies mm. or to affirm people's misconceptions. Mm, mm. You start with where they are and you bring them to where they need to go, but you never affirm their false ideas. Mm. That's a radical thought, yes. Glenn. Yeah. That could yeah. get you in trouble. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but there was a second, that, that was called, um, I think that was negative accommodation. Mm. Positive accommodation was the same basic idea, but what you would do is you would affirm people's false ideas in order to make a different point. Hmm. Hmm. So, for example, um, Jesus knew that when people died, they were there was a situation of soul sleep. Mm -hmm. But he told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus right. in which they were apparently conscious after death in order to teach a lesson uh. because that's what the people believed. Now, I'm not affirming that, yeah. but that would be an example of this kind of positive accommodation where you embrace yeah. the false ideas of the people in order to make a more important point. Hmm. And that, that distinction in accommodation, I think, hmm. is... It's, it's a brilliant analysis, and yeah. the ethics of it is, are really clear. Yeah. Negative accommodation, where you don't affirm false beliefs, but you start with where they are and don't give them the full picture right away because they're not, they yeah. don't have the equipment to deal with it. That is ethically sound. Positive accommodation was viewed as ethically wrong, yeah. where you embrace false ideas within the culture. Yeah. It, it, and it's interesting because I, I think with like a, a theological liberalism, they they thought that the 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 culture was actually more sound, yes, and more truthful than, for example, the biases and prejudices of classic Christianity. So yes. they would actually add a different level into which they would want to affirm that there is something in Christianity, some, you know, well, I don't even want to use the word essence. I mean, I, they, there was something worth affirming in Christianity, um, but they would want to say that it needs to be redefined through, through those positive, progressive ideas that show... Um, our knowledge is advanced beyond that primitive towards something fuller. And right. So, right. so what's happening here yeah. is the, the classic discussion of accommodation was how does scripture communicate? How does it yeah. accommodate itself in the course of revelation to the culture that it's in? In this version, you aren't accommodating scripture to culture you know, in, as a method of communication. Yeah. What you're doing is you are actually accommodating culture to scripture in a lot of ways. Yeah. You're saying, all right, the culture is what it is. Let's yeah. see what we can draw from scripture that might be of some use to us. Now, this reminds me of an encounter I had years ago with some people from Calvin College. <laughs> and uh, the, in this encounter, I, got the, I had the impression, this is in the mid-90s, that because of the embrace of providence, the, the doctrine of providence, that more or less God speaks to us through sort of the zeitgeist. <laughs> the zeitgeist is given the final trump card 
over uh, anything else because I, God is sovereign. And how anyone could have that after Bart, Barman, Bonhoeffer, and and the rest. I mean, that was that was the whole and it issue at stake is the zeitgeist had replaced the spirit of the ages right. and that they, they considered i mean uh, the way in which national socialism actually adopted a theology in which it was it was providence it was the zeitgeist and um what hitler was up to were 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 considered what the spirit was up to at this moment and the church had no yeah, that that's pulling Hegel into the picture too. You're yes, right. Yeah, right, Hegel right. is the big, big time. He's a big one. Um, I'm tempted to ask you who that was at Calvin College, but yeah. I'm not sure I really want to know. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll name him. I, by the I, end we'll, of we'll have this discussion after the yeah, show. I, I, I taught at Calvin from '92 to Yeah, I know. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to start with a juxtaposition. It's going to kind of go a little bit. Uh, uh, maybe away from what we've said so far. I want to contrast two points, and then I'll see where, you know, we take the conversation from this. Um, the first quote, you bear with me, I'm going to read it, um, is from Robert Sokolowski. He's a, he's a classic uh, Christian. Uh, he, he is a, a Catholic, but he represents sort of classic historic understanding of the doctrine of God. And then I want to juxtapose this over sort of what has become the... the um, the mainstream uh, evangelical um, understanding of the of God and, and the relation of things to God. So the first quote comes from his famous book, uh, The God of Faith and Reason. And he says, in the Christian faith, we are told about ourselves, about our history, about the world, but we're told about how things are and how they ought to be. But these teachings are coherent only when they are taken within a setting that is provided by a special understanding of God. Words like incarnation, redemption, Eucharist, charity, sin, conversion, hope, and I would probably say justice, um, when used in a specifically Christian way, do not simply name things that show up in human experience. What they name is determined by the God who is involved with such things. God himself as God does not appear in the world or in human experience. He's not one kind of being that can be present as a thing in the world. And yet despite this necessary absence, he is believed to be that which gives the definitive sense to everything that does appear in the world and in experience. So what we're looking at in this particular thing is that everything that a Christian talks about, whether it's sin, salvation, and all these things, these things have coherence only when they're understood over against a particular understanding of God that the Christian faith has is, is always posited um, from the beginning. And so uh, you don't get the God right, you don't get the rest of those things right because they're determined by who he is and what he's done. So I'm going to juxtapose this quote with something uh, 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 Christopher Smith, uh, a sociologist, uh, noted about a decade ago when he was analyzing trends in emerging adults. So I'd imagine these 18 to 23-year-olds are millennial, you know, at the heart right right now. In his well-known book, Souls in Transition, he noted uh, a significant research that uh, most emerging adults in the West, the U.S. in particular, they have religious beliefs. They believe in God. They mostly believe in the afterlife. They often believe in Jesus. 
But those religious ideas are for the most part abstract agreements that have been mentally checked off and filed away. They're not what emerging adults, um, these emerging adults organize their lives around. Mm. They do not particularly drive the majority priorities, commitments, values, and goals. They have much more to do with jobs, friends, fun, and financial security, and maybe today moralistic causes. Yet basic religious beliefs indirectly maybe help them feel and understand what is good, but that comes out of a socialized instinct and feelings, not anything they had thought about consciously or actively have committed themselves. So in this way, most emerging adults maintain various religious beliefs, but actually don't think they matter all that much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have Sokolovsky presenting the historic Christian vision as something that you cannot even understand even what it means to be a human, much less history, salvation, sin, justice, all these things, really even friendship, I mean, whatever it comes down to, apart from a certain understanding of God, to a trend within the church, and he's talking about evangelicals at this point, where this generation says, yeah, I've checked this view of God off, but it's not informing any of these categories like sin, salvation, redemption, or anything in my life. What is important to me is this this worldly um, relationships. Hmm. These are at the, and, you know, and the, and, and the quality of life I have, not not the content of God. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Yeah. One of the things that I've been teach when I've been teaching about worldview lately, one of the things that I've been telling people a lot is your worldview is revealed by what you do by default. Yeah. So simply checking off the box, I believe this, doesn't say anything about what you really believe. Right, right. What you believe is inevitably revealed by what you do. Now this this is something though that I think reformed people have a hard time dealing with. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, obviously we're people who believe in faith. (laughs) And when we think of faith, we think of faith as something that is is something that can be put into a proposition. Uh, stated, I believe in God the Father Almighty, or, or I believe that yes. Jesus died for me, that kind of thing. And the idea that you your faith is revealed through your behavior kind of sounds workish, so to yeah. speak. Well, all right, let's take a look at that one. I'm sorry, I'm going about to derail your entire discussion <laughs> time. Um, if, you, if you look at what Jesus you, you, you remember him? He's the guy we say is Lord, right? <laughs> he, yeah, I've heard about that guy. <laughs> he, whenever he talks about the last judgment, he never talks about faith in that it's sense. Right, right, he always right. talks about what you do. Right, right. And I don't think that there's an incompatibility with, between that and justification by faith. That's right. Uh, the, the key here is that in Scripture, it's very clear that the only person who knows your heart knows your mind is God himself. You don't even really know it. That's exactly right. And as a result, God, I think, is being very gracious in the judgment in that he is going to judge us on the basis only of things we have accessible to ourselves. So he's not going to come to judgment and say, well, I know you thought you believed, but you really didn't, so you're in trouble. (laughs) What he's going to say is, what you believe is exhibited by what you do, and let's take a look at what you did. You have access to that. You know what that is. You can look at that and evaluate your own life, and that will tell you what you really believe. And thus, justification by faith, by trusting in Christ, 
for the forgiveness of our sins, that's maintained, but the evidence for it is in what you do. This is the reconciliation of Paul and James. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's it in, in yeah. particular. I mean, I, I think most, you know, classic Reformed have said both have to be, other than Luther and his wanting to rip, <laughs> rip up James. Right, um, right. I mean, Calvin held, held those things in balance. Sure. That, uh, but modern know, evangelicals aren't so good at that. That's right. That's right. I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, I, uh, you know, here's a name <laughs> a lot of the audience may or may not like or know, uh, John Gershner, but he used to brilliantly say that you're saved by faith alone, but you're saved by faith that is not alone. So the faith is mm. productive because you're, you're born again and that, that new birth bears fruit of you being born of the Spirit. And because of that, your works, therefore, what James is talking about, attest to the genuineness of your faith. Mm-hmm. Right. So there isn't a contradiction going on there. Sure. Yeah. And that there, there is a call that you've been, you've been called to this, sanctified to this, to do good works. You, you yeah. are, you know, so these things are not inconsistent. And as Gershner would say, the works have to be there. I mean, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Being, okay. Right. Evangelicals really like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but they ignore 10. Well, and yeah, that's, right, that, right, I think right. that's part of the issue with what I'm up to is, is why, exactly. you know, that why this kind of um, th- this kind of thinning out of the theological, you know, ground to the point that it, it allows for pseudo types of morality or virtue to fill the gap when genuine good works have been sort of, you know, considered taboo or, con- you know, th- this kind of allergy to it. And, and so, but, but this is what, you know, you know, this is one of the things you have going on here. I mean, one could say that, okay, what, what you have here is a bunch of, bunch of millennials who just simply do, have not been catechized well, and therefore there's no faith happening here. I mean, right. one could say that. Maybe, right. that's, maybe that's what's going on, a given over generation. Um, but on the other hand, it, it just raises the question of how significant historic Christianity understood the relationship of its doctrine of God to everything else, to the way in which the evangelical world considers everything else and the doctrine of God becomes sort of a gloss or a, a it functions more as a support to the everything else rather than the definitive and determinative condition for everything else. And I, mean, I think that's one of them. I mean, Smith, Smith talked about this group as being very attracted to what he calls, it's kind of popular now, this kind of moral therapeutic deism. Right, right. So these, these students come out, yeah, there's a God, he kind of watches over everything, but he wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Um, the goal of life is to be happy, feel good about yourself, and have, you know, I'm sure a lot of money in the bank. Right. It's amazing and how this this sort of perpetuates the liberal order. It does. That's right. The, the liberal order, the, and almost a liberal elite order. Right, right, yeah, right, right. right. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when the resources, to, you know, as a resource to solve our problems. And so all good people go to heaven. These are kind of okay, what okay. Smith says. Or the, right. We've got a movie called All Good Dogs Go to Heaven. Go to Heaven. That's <laughs> right. No, no good there. It's just all dogs go to heaven. That's yeah, right. That's right. I stand corrected. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and so he, and he says sort of the authority who gets to determine what's true, good, or right in religion in this group tends to be kind of the, the person themselves in principle. And so theology and religion, they don't really have a, 
an authority. Religion really offers a helpful, you know, it's a, it's a resource for help in life. You mean that clerics are supposed to have authority? Yeah, no authority. No, your yeah. goal is to kind of help people feel kind better. Kind of pursue their own goals. Yeah, just, you know, yeah, affirm them in their, <laughs> their Affirm goals. them in their, yes, sir. Affirm yeah. them in their, yeah, their, yeah. their life Ways plans. Ways to make good decisions. Script. Help them make good decisions. <laughs> and if they disagree with you, back off, you know. <laughs> um, and basically, it's a, a it's this worldly flourishing. Right, right. And so another one, this generation would have had parents usually shaped by spiritual lives and churches indebted to the changes brought about with the baby boomer generation. Yeah. Um, church as mall. Church as mall. Yep, shopping mall and, and great theater. Right. You know, good entertainment. You know, right, great right. playground. Right. I, I once heard, you know, no offense to a local pastor, he'll know who he is, but he once said, why shouldn't the church have the best theme park better than everyone else and that's what st paul thought you know that's right it reminds me of jim and tammy baker yeah, that's exactly think, what the program uh, was I, is that the best theme park. Yeah. now anybody who who yeah. is older than we are have no has no <laughs> clue or younger than we are has no clue what i was just referring no, to i remember her well, i'm thinking of waterbury and the uh, what was it, Holy Land or something like that, which was a, a, a theme park in Waterbury. Is really, that, right? in Connecticut. Yeah. So you you can actually. When, I don't know if it's still standing, but uh, <laughs> up until a few years ago, you could actually see the cross on the mountain above it. <laughs> wow. That was an anchor. That's for the, what that is. And uh, I go through Waterbury and I see that cross, I and I'm thinking like it's Rio de Janeiro or something. Yeah. Mm, nope. <laughs> It, 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 it was part of, I, I don't remember whether the name was Holy Land, but it was something like that. That, as that reminds me part. of something. I'm, I'm, we used to go, I, our youth group goes to Fairmount, West Virginia every year. And as, and as, as they're journeying down, I think it's 70, going through uh, Maryland and into West Virginia, there's this thing on the side of the road yeah, that's just... Huge, I know, you, you know what I'm talking, talking about? about. It's, like it's, a, right. huge, it's supposed to be like Noah's Ark. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So there's this, like this, these these I-beams, this, this steel structure that's supposed to be a Noah's Ark theme park. And it's been standing there for like... This is like right out of the Bible, you know, the man who begins to build a tower and can't finish it. Yeah, this is yeah. exactly... And Jesus, of course, said this is like evidence of like stupidity. <laughs> It's, it's funny you mentioned that. This is you know, a, a way off side. Note. There's a little town outside of where I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. It's a town my dad grew up, Colonial Heights, Virginia. And there was a man, no kidding, and I think he's still around. I think he's, still there. he's building an ark in his yard. No. And you can, you can actually look this up. So anyway, he's, he's, the, he's crazy Noah for our time. So, so, so the question that I have yeah. is where is he getting the gopher wood? I don't know. No, I think it's, I think it's made out of something different. But yeah. something compels him. I'm, I'm not, I'm not so, in between I him Dutch, and that. I remember a Dutch guy. There's like this guy in the Netherlands who did the, the whole ark thing. I did it. It's like a, a yeah. theme park again, you know. It's a, yeah. like, how many, how many, no, how many arcs yeah. do we need? See, see, who's the guy? Uh, the, the creation, yeah, Ken Ham. Ken Look, Ham you yeah. didn't need to build that whole thing in Kentucky. They've been going building these things <laughs> for a yeah, long time. And, and just, just, just as a point of information. I didn't grow up around Holy Land um, in Waterbury. I grew up in New Jersey. That's right. So That's right. about as far away from Holy Land as you can get. Yeah. No comment. <laughs> but, but we're near Holy Land now, and we don't even know about it. So that says everything. Uh, so, okay. So anyway, back, back to this notion of, of kind of what's going on in our churches that creates the set of conditions for which evangelical um, emerging adults 
would want to give a certain assent to what they grew up with, but basically throw all of it off and are, are much more associated with this kind of what what uh, Chris yeah. Smith will call a sort of moral, Moralistic you know, therapeutic therapy. deism. Yeah. It's not really a deism, but I, I get what he's up to there. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically... It's, it's almost like a, a supportive uh, great counselor God, a God you'd pay a lot of money to give you good counseling, to kind of give you, come alongside and give you wisdom to help right, you negotiate right. the stresses of, of kind of millennial life. And, and to bail you out when you need it. When you need right, it, that's yeah. right. I mean, and you know, I kind of laugh, but it's, you know, it's a, there's a serious issue here. Yeah. Because what has happened here is you've went from a God who historically has been sought for his own sake. Seek first the kingdom of God, the wealth of his righteousness, all these other things will be added unto you. Give up all and follow him. Um, you know, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your thought, you know, your ways. You, you, have, you have a God who, who um, ontologically is um, holy in a way that nothing that we are or can be has the ability to domesticate. And it's this flip to basically a God that is available to our domestication, mm -hmm. ready to accommodate himself right. to our cares and concerns. And so what we have is, you know, what I God's the water boy. Yes, God sort of is shifted from, from you know, um, the one who is one of a kind, who besides me there is no other, to which you give up all and follow, the one who is the pearl of great price, the one who is consider the tower, what you're going to do, give up all and follow. Um, let your identity now be found strictly in giving up yourself to follow this God, to a God who has become a function of our, our lives and our well-being. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think every culture, every Christian church's worldview is shaped out of the culture and scripture. And the question becomes, which has the upper hand? Yeah, yeah. And what we have here is a Christianity that's shaped by Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. So, like, just so our listeners know who you're referring to, can you get a little bit into Maslow? <laughs> um, Maslow was a psychologist who argued that there's a, what he called a hierarchy of needs. You know, at the most basic level, we need food and water and clothing and, and uh, shelter and those kinds of things. And then as you, once you get one level of needs met, you move to the next higher level, to the next higher level, to the next higher level, until eventually you're at the level of self-actualization, once all the other needs are met. And basically, what I see going on with moralistic therapeutic deism and with the general trend, I would argue, in a lot of evangelical churches is a Christianized version of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as if God is there to give you a fulfilled and fulfilling life. Your best life now. Right. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is all those things that Sokolovsky is talking about early, incarnation, salvation, sanctification, justification, justice, sin, they end up taking on a series of definitions that have very little continuity with classic Christian conception of God and the moral and religious context that was original that the classic Christian of God addressed. 
Now here's something I'd like to sort of introduce yeah. to, to hear you respond to Tom. Uh, seems to me that we've lost our doctrine of the world in the sense of the negative. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so for example, now we're we're so world affirming. Yes. You know that we don't have any sense that the world can be a negative thing. Yeah. That, yeah. Right. yeah. What do you do with a verse like "Friendship with the world is enmity with God"? Right. Yes. Right. Yes. You know, I mean, there's, there's, you're right. There's absolutely no sense of that at all. Yeah. And I think it's parallel. But unless you hate your father and mother and follow me, it's, it's yeah. not hate your father and mother. It's the point is, is that if, if that set of worldly things is gets in the way of the absolute claim of this God on one's being, then that has to be done away with because it is functioning as an idol rather than. A, Proportion the right way God yeah. has ordained it, and and yeah, th those things are very similar. That that is what has happened. It, it's it's like this world affirming, but not creation affirming. It's more ah, it's more fallen point. world affirming. Yes. I think that's it. In all of its yeah. distortions of the created order, and yes. in all of its self affirming. It, it, I mean, you know, let's just. Well, let me give you just an example yeah. of how this works. You know, so, yeah. for example, I've I've been uh, I'm known on our podcast for critiquing. Sort of the cool table. Yeah, yeah. And what I mean by the cool table is sort of the, the acolytes of people like Tim Keller. Now, regardless of whether Tim Keller is everything that that would imply, my point is is that there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of uh, sort of uh, success story that Tim Keller represents that a lot of young church planters would like to emulate. Mm -hmm. Like they'd like to be. I wish I were like that guy. That kind of thing. <laughs> so there's that. That's there's, 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 that. That sure. yeah. Right. So now within that, you've got this sort of uh, this disposition of a world affirmation. You know, in other words, that we 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 want to make a difference in this city. Yeah. yeah. Right. But at the same time, there's this sort of cool table uh, embrace of social justice. Hmm. Now, we know that there have been many injustices yes. in the world. That's right. And there are many things that we can point to and, and say plenty that. plenty in New York City, despite de Blasio. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that's actually where I'm going with yeah. this. So, just the other day, uh, The Atlantic of all, of all publications came out, with, came out with, a pub, uh, with an article that talked about basically uh, the city as being sterile. I mean, I mean, in terms of fecundity, in terms of like new life, like children. Hmm. So, so what the what the Atlantic was saying is that you know there's everything's great in the city except for for this particular thing. There are no kids. Yeah. Now, a guy like Tim Keller, I'll just lay it out as plain as I can. He's known for making some, I think, fair statements about the history of racial injustice in the United States. Has he ever said a word about that? about this that about childlessness hmm. about the fact? that Manhattan is perhaps the most child inhospitable place in the world. Mm. Which is a fundamental moral issue. It's a <laughs> fundamental moral issue. We're, we talked about the welfare state in an earlier podcast. There's no way the welfare state's gonna continue if people don't have kids. Yeah. Do we care about poor people or old people? Yeah. No, if we don't have kids, we don't care about poor people or old people. Who is saying this yeah. Yeah. in the cool table of the reform world? At, Gospel Coalition. When was the last time someone yeah. brought this up? Yeah. I, I, have, I have a friend who said, 
you know, back in the day when Tim Keller was getting a start and he had a bunch of people coming to his church, he said, you know how you get rid of all those people in an instant? Bring up birth control. Uh. Just say that birth control is something that Christians throughout the entire history of the Christian church until 1930 universally condemned. Mm. And all those people who were coming to the cool church, Redeemer, would just evaporate. Mm. They'd go away. Because your worldview is revealed by what you do by default, <laughs> not by what you say. Yes. And what you and and that's the one thing I didn't say earlier about this. It's what you do by default. What do you do? Just sort of on when you're operating on autopilot, when you're not making conscious decision, where do you land? Yeah. That's really where your worldview is, and what you're talking about with these school table reform guys is. A, you know, what they do speaks so loud you can't hear what they're saying. Right. So when I look at this particular issue, hey, I'm all for reaching the city. Absolutely. I'm all for reaching the city. But let's just be honest. Manhattan is sick. Now, there are lots of great things about Manhattan. Beautiful, beautiful, uh, you know, uh, park, you know, you know, Central, Central park. park. I love Central Park. I've been there many times. I love the museums. Great I think museums. they're great. Yeah. I think the restaurants are marvelous. But what's horrible about Central Park, or not Central Park, but Manhattan, is that it is hostile to the family structurally. Now, here's the thing. These guys love to talk about structural evil. They love to talk about structural injustice. Hmm. But, where, but, but, but when are they uh, ever going to address this, the subject of the structural sort of hostility to family life hmm. in places like Manhattan? It's just, it's prohibitively expensive to have a kid in their hand. Yeah. Prohibitively, because, yeah. first of all, housing. And we could go to San Francisco. We could talk about it there. You just, you know, we could go to all the cool places to live, yeah. and it's the same story. Well, and, and then bringing it back to, to Tom's point, what these things do is they reveal a set of priorities. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the priorities that they reveal are not the priorities of historic Christianity. Mm -hmm. And they are certainly not a priority on God as revealed in Scripture or the classical Christian tradition. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, what I'd love to see is somebody who made an argument for going to Manhattan mm -hmm. and reaching the up and outers with a rescue mission, mm -hmm. just the way we think of reaching down and outers through rescue missions. Mm -hmm. I'd be fine with that. If we, if we considered Redeemer Church in Manhattan yeah. to be a rescue mission for up and outers so that we reintroduce them to reality. Yeah, we, we tend to think they're okay <laughs> other than the fact that they're just lost. Right, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. They can continue to <laughs> yeah. to to do to yeah. to to restaurant hop yeah. all they want and go to incredibly yeah. no, overpriced no shift of, of, right. of relationship or anything. And this is one I think this is one of the things that, you know, I think this juxtaposition points out is that, it's like Glenn was saying here too, is that the, the commitment to the historic Christian vision, the understanding of God and all things in relation to God has, has definition and it has limits. And these things preserve not only the, 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 um, the center of God to all things, but also that everything only has life and definition because of its dependence and definition by this God. And this God has determined not only the significance, meaning, and, but the purposes of all things. And so because of that, you can't just start to, to, to bring definitions into things that don't consider their determination by this God. 
Now, I, th I know in, in, in sort of systematic theology, a lot of um, trends have started to happen. And this isn't new. This has been going on longer than I've been around, let's put it this way. But I've definitely been someone who has um, been brought into understanding its impact on things. And, and one of these things has been a shift in even the evangelical world in its theology proper, its teaching of God, its understanding of God. And, and what happened... And notice how much of an allergy yeah. that your typical evangelical has to even talk about that subject. That's right. I mean, there, yeah, there, you could, I mean, I know uh, David Wells has points out sort of uh, a lot of the studies that come out, you know, sort of we live in an anti-theological age, an anti-intellectual age. I think these things go hand in hand sometimes. Right. Um, but, but yes, there, there is this sense in which even to talk about something as important as the doctrine of God or who God is, um, is already stepping into territory that has too much allergy and reaction in, in the Christian church, which already, you know, that, there's your telling point. I mean, if you have a problem talking doctrine, period, you have a problem. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you have no you... business in the Christian church. So. Right, right, that's right. Um, and, that's right. And, but the thing is, the doctrine of God in particular, and so one of the things is that happened is, you know, and we talked about last week, um, this, the, you know, Adolf von Harnack in, in Germany, and he was yeah. a famous liberal, hist you know, he was one, someone who wanted to bring some measure of objectivity to theology, and he thought history was the means to do it. But his problem was he had a naturalistic view of history, and therefore it jettisoned everything else other than the sort of content that, that kind of arose with Christianity. And he had a very reductionistic understanding. I mean, Christianity was basically the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of humanity. Um, but for him, history became, rather than metaphysics or, or, or philosophy, you know, he, he was post-Kantian. You know, we had no access to God that mm. way, so mm. therefore it had to come through some kind of historical, moral, of this-worldly yeah. means. Yeah. And yeah. so for him it was history. Right. And, um, and Carl, it's, it's, it's surprising how many evangelicals have bought into that. They have bought, and, and, and it really has dominated for so. And which, almost, which is weird because of how ahistorical most evangelicals actually are, <laughs> and how, and to top it off, maybe to their to, to their benefit, ahistorical theology proper is. I mean, God isn't isn't determined by his actions in history. Yeah, and so yeah. we're dealing with a metaphysical issue from the start. And, and historic Christianity had this. Harnack, Van Harnack didn't. Um, and so what happened is, yes, evangelicals kind of, kind of jump right on board. You know, to be objective, we have to deal with the God, the God who acts in history. We want to put all... Well, you know, the time to get off the boat is when the evangelicals jump on. Because they're right. always the last that's ones right. on. And that's a sign and that it's a ship that has passed this. Strangely, <laughs> it was Karl Barth rather than the evangelicals that, that stood up against Van Harnack. And so Karl Barth was like, wait a minute. Did, did the evangelicals even know what a Harnack was talking about? I don't even think about. they did at this time, <laughs> not the ones in Germany. I don't think they did. I mean, you did have, you did have a few figures that would, would have been considered what we would call sort of, um, yeah, confessionalist um, evangelicals. That right. they, they would have, but they were, so, they, were, they were so reactionary or considered so outside of the conversation that they really had no big impact. Um, I think Bart had the strongest impact, um, but he, he went for the jugular with it. And he said, if it comes down to a doctrine of God grounded in God's own self-revelation versus history, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run with the other. 
Um, uh, uh. Bart's problem was he had already given in too much to the metaphysics of Kant that he almost wanted an anti-metaphysical. He, he, he actually followed von Harnack probably. I would say Karl Barth ended up with Hegel a little more, but that's not for this show. <laughs> um, but but he, he was still trying to sort through that issue. So, um, yeah. One of the things that's worth, I, I think, just sort of throwing out here mm. is a classical distinction that exists between apophatic theology and cataphatic theology. Yeah. Right. In a nutshell, yeah, yeah. God is mystery versus God is revealed. Yes, yeah. The Western church has traditionally, and we're seeing this in, in yeah. spades with Harnack and liberalism, yeah, yeah. they put so much emphasis on God as revealed, yeah. God as rational, God as knowable, yeah, yeah. that they completely lose the mystery. Yeah. And God, the, 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 this focus on God as knowable ultimately reduces God to something that you can contain, that you That's can control. Right. That, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah you, yeah, you hit it right on the nose. I mean, the, 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 the uh, via negativa, the, those attributes in Christian theology that talk about purging, when we talk about God, negating the creaturely aspects in order to affirm something about God, which we would call, like, for example, if a creature is finite, we would talk of God as infinite. That doesn't tell us a whole lot about what infinity means, but right. it does tell you one thing, that it is not finitude. Um, when we talk about as God is immutable, it doesn't tell us a lot about what immutability is, but it means one thing for sure, God is not changeable like creaturely things are. So these negative um, attributes are what, what Christian theologians in the reform world would call the incommunicable attributes. These have to do with only God. These govern God because God is fully God, independent of ever having created. These are not things that God is because he created and we're comparing him. These are intrinsic to who God is as a perfect, fully realized existence and being itself. And so God, these attributes are those that cannot be domesticated and assimilate. So even when we talk about God's personality, it has to be balanced by the fact that the kind of person God is is wholly unique because of the kind of God is as uncreated being. And this, to, it, it, as an illustration here, um, the, the classic discussion of the via negativa, the, the, the fact that all of our language is inadequate to describe God, yeah. is the statement, God exists. Yeah. The via positiva yeah. says, yes, that's a true statement. The via yeah. negativa says, well, not so fast. That's right. Because everything you conceive of as existence right. is anchored in a world that is contingent, yeah, that, yeah. that is not necessary. Yeah. God's existence necessary. is necessary yeah. and it is not in any way relatable to anything that we know or see or experience in any other context. Yeah. So when we say God exists, yeah. the concept we have of existence doesn't really apply to God it, because it's it, he's totally separate from that's that. That's right. Yeah. So in the same way, yeah. God is personal. Well, yeah, but it's a totally different kind of personhood than what we think of. That's right. Um, you know, it's interesting that when you read Isaiah or Revelation 4, Isaiah 6, mm -hmm. Revelation 4, the beings that are quite literally the closest to God, the one thing that they keep saying is God is holy, holy, holy. Yeah, yeah. Now, we misunderstand what holiness is all the time. What it means is he is totally separate or distinct from everything else. Yeah. The beings that know God the best 
say he we we don't understand him we don't know him he's totally different that's when god says sort of you know when in in the same text of isaiah when god is talking about you know beside me there is no other he's talking not in degree but in kind right there is no ontological um sharing with who this it's sui generis and you know for the academics out there it's it's the divine solace there is only a one of a kind here and this God is not related to everything else in terms of degree. It's in terms of being. And this is something I think that for, for even modern evangelists, they don't have, they're thinking God's just a bigger version of us. It just and, and I think this is what I wanted to play into, is this sort of, what happens is we end up domesticating God without even wanting to, because we want to talk about God's personal and coming down and incarnate and yeah. dwelling among us. But it's not qualified by what historic Christianity did, this negative attribute to God or these distinct, uh, these kind of attributes are not domesticated. And so when Christ comes on the scene, the reason everyone hushes up and shuts up when he calms the wave is because they understand the, the metaphysical otherness that Jesus is as the divine son. Here is a person who does something that is not domesticatable in, in time and space. But, and, especially but, in the context of the sea, that's right. in the ancient Near East. Yeah. But I think, too, that what, that, you know, what you know, the apostles did with regard to the revelation yeah. through Christ yeah. is they said, here at last is someone we can relate to in the sense of his humanity. Yeah, yeah. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to sort of read the humanity of Christ back into yes. the fullness of the Godhead. Yeah. Where, whereas what we ought to be reading or seeing is the redemption of ourselves in yes. the humanity of Christ. Yes, yes. And and there is a place of, of you know, there, there's a way in which Christ sympathizes with us. That's, that's right. because he takes upon himself our nature that's right and, and, and here is in hebrews says here's one we who can empathize with right. everything we're going through but what's being held in balance here is both the utterly uniqueness of god with this god who through kenosis um comes into our very presence in yeah. such a way that he can be closer to us than we are to ourselves he can be more personal to us than we are to our very own selves because of the kind of yeah. person that right. we have. And, and the effect of domesticating God, yeah. making him essentially a bigger and better version of us, yeah. is that we lose a significant part of our own redemption. Yes, In right. that we, we, we lose what, what the Greeks call theosis. Right. We, right. we lose the, the idea that rather than God being just like us. God's radically different, but we have the ability, the privilege in salvation to become like him, at least on some measure and some level. The the, the thing that's astounding about the incarnation is that the, uh, uh, the God who is immutable, unchangeable, eternal, utterly above and beyond anything that we can imagine, changed. Yeah. He's immutable, but he changed. He acquired something he didn't yeah, have before, which or, is a human nature. Yeah. And, and he still has that. And theologians would probably say that you wouldn't talk about that in terms of change. I'm talking like as so much as a, 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 a assumed something new. Um, it, it wouldn't change the being of God, but it would be a, the assumption of something in addition to God. Right. And But the change is in us. The change is in and, us. And then, yeah. But what that does, exactly, yeah. is it enables us to 
participate, read John 14, 15, That's 16, right. it enables us to participate in the life of the Trinity in a way that would have been inconceivable and impossible And prior that's to the this. thing is I think salvation gets shortchanged by being, by, um, I, mean, I think the classic, I mean, the, the, the historic patristics were, were right on where this sense in which we are made to take our historical being up into a glorified, you know, they'll use the language of deification, into communion, eternal communion with God. This is eternal life, that you know this God. I mean, this is Jesus' language in John, that you know the Father and that, that the Son will reveal to you what the Father's revealed to the Son. So, you, they, you know, I always tell my students with theology, theology is so central that Jesus says, this is eternal life that you know God. Knowledge of God is yeah, theology. Right, right. And so to put theology on the back burner and say it's not fundamentally yeah, significant right. to your salvation is, is really, a sh you know, really... That's insane. It's this, yeah. yeah. Now, th we, before we had, uh, you know, before we began recording, we talked a little bit about uh, Mormon theology. Yeah, yeah. And sort of what you have with Mormon theology is a weird kind of recovery of theosis yeah but through the through the air that you've been describing that's right yeah you know so like you know the the sort of the uh, the way that's that it's sometimes put within mormon theology is as god uh is so yes. we shall be as god was so we are so this yeah. idea that god is kind of it's kind of you know process theology yeah, but it's, it's also like, so personal and so yeah. particular and so sort of bound by the finite God actually lives on some planet somewhere. That's right. God, even God the Father, ends up becoming just like a, a superior, incarnated human, yes, deified. Right. right. And right. so there isn't there isn't the kind of um, ontological divine spirit that, that Christianity. Um, yeah, Mormon God's theology is essentially modern in the sense that it doesn't have an understanding of antas. That's right. It's basically sort of less, more or less adopted the That's right. the sort of deistic understanding of That's reality. Right. Yeah, I mean, Christ's incarnation was on behalf of us and his creation. It was not something intrinsic to God and God's becoming. And I yeah. think that's where Mormons go wrong. They think that sort of the incarnation was part of this process God had to go through to become yeah, a yeah. fully, you know, ev evolutionary process yeah. sense of, right, right, of, right. of God. Yep. Yeah. But, but if you move away from Mormon theology into evangelical theology, one of the things that drives me crazy... You mean there's a difference? <laughs> yeah, there is. There is. Subtle, subtle. I'm having a little what, fun here. What, what, one of the things that drives me crazy is this shtick you see pretty regularly that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, no, it's yeah. a religion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I mean... The question the, the, for the reformers is... True or false religion, true right. and false yes. theology, and I think those are the best terms. Right, and and you know th this idea of Christianity is having a personal relationship with God, yeah. affirmed by evangelicals. Great, find me the phrase in Scripture. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, and, we, and we, who doesn't, in a sense, as being creatures, have a personal relationship with God? Right, exactly. The question yeah, sometimes is, sometimes it's a bad relationship. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's the mode of that relation that's that right, has to right. do with religion. That's right, exactly. Yeah, we all are related to God. That's what Paul was yeah. saying in, in, in yeah. Acts 17. That's right. In him we live and yeah. move and ever be. I mean, I remember right. Nicholas Lash, a Roman Catholic professor I had, he said, there is nowhere that you can go where God is not, so how is it that you could ever say that you don't have to do with God? Yeah, so right. his point, point is atheism is just built on nonsense. That's right. So you can show you're an absolutely self-existent being, God himself, then yeah. you have to have bearings right. with right. God. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's of course one of the things that the, the I think I think that the 
that the presuppositionalists have right is there's an there's an internal conflict in the logic of uh, atheism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we're kind of coming to the point where we need to start uh, wrapping things up a bit. Um, this has been a lot of fun, yeah. and I think one of the things, and, and I'll, I'll do a little bit of thinking here out loud, and then Glenn, and then you can wrap it up, Tom. But now, you know, one of the things that you know is great that that you provide, Tom, is is I think um, there is this pervasive conviction in evangelical churches that theology is something somehow incidental. <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing, kind of stuff, you know. Whereas, and it probably even gets in the way. That's it, yeah. right, right. That we, we, we want to reach people for Christ, as though that then, is somehow not related to theology. That's right, that's right. That's but what we end up with is, is this sort of goofiness, uh, this sort of, uh, you know, sort of pragmatic, market-driven goofiness where Jesus is your best friend or Jesus is your best life now or Jesus is your counselor, and it's all reflecting this, this inability to deal with reality sort of what I think you get at, Tom, is, is that when we're talking about theology, we're talking about reality with a yeah. capital R. In, What's in, real? That's right, in that, that it has very specific contours that most evangelicals are unfamiliar with. I'll give you one example, and then we can kind of close out. Roger Olson, many of us know this person, he wrote uh, for Zondervan, he's got a book, The Essentials of Christian Thought, Seeing Reality Through the Biblical Story. Well. As a theologian, I already know a problem with that title. I'm not going to get into that right now. But I just want you to hear this quote he says on page 84. He says, Nearly all extra-biblical philosophers struggle with the idea of a personal, related, vulnerable, ultimate reality capable, capable of being influenced by what creatures do. He has already accommodated himself to oh, theologies that are fundamentally inconsistent with what the historic faith has held. He's an Arminian. He is, and, and this is the way he. This is the way in which he justifies it. He right, needs. Right. He needs re, the biblical um, reality picture to allow God to be determined in some sense by human choices. And That's so right. he's, he's redefined God in order to justify now, that he would Now, he would repudiate the thinking of Tom Ward, I know, because yeah. I've heard him repudiate it, but he is actually more on the same page with the process theologians of yes. Tom Ward than he's yeah. willing to let on. That's right, I agree with you. Yeah. Anything you want to say there, Glenn, as we wrap up? Um, this particular topic has... Um, triggered a number of my personal raves. <laughs> triggering, and, triggering. Yes. Um, there's, um, it, it, there are so many things here that, that we could just continue on, it seems, yeah. for weeks. Yeah. Um, right. it, it's, it's an incredibly important topic. Yeah. And the, the, what it all comes down to, I think, is an insistence that the creator is answerable to the creature. Yes, yeah. right. right. That, it, that God is answerable to us, that it's our interests, our desires, our free will, yeah. all of these things that override and that are more fundamental, more important than God's character and God's own will. And it, that seems to me to be yeah. a degree of arrogance that I'm not sure even being from New Jersey, I'm not sure I want to go that far. <laughs> and, yeah, and that's an excellent way of summing that up. And this is the last thing I'll end on. Maybe I'll do, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit this. But what ends up happening is really the replacing of a certain uh, essentialist view of God's nature for a relational view. 
Yeah. And therefore, it creates as a counterpart a, relate, a solely relational view of the human being made in God's image, who doesn't have a distinct essence or kind Ooh. or moral order, but actually a functional um, relationship to all things, so that that human doesn't have an essence. Therefore, it doesn't have an essence, essence as a male or a female or as a human person. These things are not defined, but they're they're in process. They're in becoming. And so therefore, you create the conditions in the evangelical world for redefinition and the input of all of this constant flux that we get from the larger society in redefining the human rather than a solid substance that human beings can cling to and say, wait a minute, God has drawn lines here that I can actually be free because I know who I am and where I'm navigating. And there you go, podcast listeners. That's why the progressives are working their way into the evangelical world is right there. And they've been arguing for this way of thinking based on being relevant, based on being uh, responsive and reaching the lost and all this uh, sort of stuff that you would, you would have thought, there's no way that any of this stuff that we're trying to do is actually sort of the doorway into abandoning the Christian faith. But anyway, on that happy thought, <laughs> it's been great to have you with us on the podcast. We've, uh, again, gone a little bit long, but uh, we're glad you stayed with us through the show. And uh, we appreciate your listening. Uh, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.